The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Everybody to the Talking Space Podcast second season of shows. We thank you for joining us again, for those of you that are returning once again, and for those of you that are listening for the first time, as always, welcome, and we hope you enjoy. And joining me, as always, is the greatest panel that any podcast could ever have. Mark Ratterman, welcome. How are you? Hi, sir. Good to be here. Good to be looking forward to 2010, but I'm going to be looking both forward and back with our guest we got to talk to today. Indeed, forward and backwards and left and right and up and down. And uh, Gene McCulka, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, Just looking forward to year two of uh, Talking Space and definitely looking forward to talking to our guest today. I think we all are. And Gina Herlihy, welcome as well. Thank you, Sawyer. I'm very excited about season two, our 2010. We got, we're going to have a very busy podcast year. Oh boy, busy indeed it is, and I think we're all looking forward to that. Now to kick off season two, we have a very special guest joining us. So with us is a man who has not only left the Earth five times, including on shuttle mission STS-120, where he performed an unplanned, dangerous spacewalk to repair a teared solar array, but has also been to the highest point on Earth, Mount Everest. This journey was also documented by the Discovery Channel on its show Everest Beyond the Limit, which aired December 27th on Discovery Channel and is also available online and will be available soon on DVD. So please welcome also a member of the Board of Directors at the Challenger Centers for Space Science Education, Dr. Scott Parazinski. Welcome, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. Thanks for inviting me today. Not a problem. Thank you very much for coming on. So I think the first question that you should definitely ask in this case is, since you've done space flights, you've summoned Mount Everest, you've done luge, you tried out for the 88 Olympic luge team, and what was the difference in the thrill that you got from each of the events, space flight, climbing Everest, and uh, doing luge? Was it similar or different? That's a really great question. Um, I think what uh, really inspires me is just to, uh, to take on challenges to really uh, jump in with both feet. Um, I don't do anything halfway, so um, I, I just, uh, if I'm going to do something, I, I try and do it the very best that I can. And uh, you know, certainly the activities that you mentioned have uh, an element of adrenaline to them. They're, they're great adventures. Uh, you know, Luge, for example, is an amazing uh, Winter Olympic event. If you've never seen it, uh, you'll be able to see it here uh, come February 12th in the Vancouver uh, Winter Olympic Games. But uh, it's a, a cafeteria tray-sized sled that uh, people lay down on feet first and go uh, 90 miles an hour 
sometimes more than that, and pull very high Gs around these huge iced curves, and, and uh, it's just a, an amazing experience uh, to be just a few inches off of ice and see the, uh, the world zooming past you, um, kind of like being on your rocket sled. <laughs> um, and then, of course, to, uh, to get a chance to go uh, climb Everest was a, a great thrill as well, although the speeds involved are much, much slower. I'd imagine in that case you're actually climbing a mountain. <laughs> yeah, you know the the descent. Uh, if if you uh, uh, aren't careful, your descent can be quite fast as well. But uh, I I took uh, good care to uh, to descend carefully and and uh, thankfully didn't have to, to test that one out. Scott, can you compare or parallel your training experiences for spaceflight, or more specifically, an EVA? your training for an attempt to ascend to the top of Mount Everest? An EVA and uh, you know, suiting up for Summit Day on Everest. You know, there's a lot of dependence gear and on your, your physical as well as your technical training. Uh, the hatch versus stepping out of your tent uh, going for the summit. So you're, you're wearing essentially a suit in both conditions. Uh, on Everest, I wore a, a huge down suit that kept me warm and um, isolated from the environment. I had an oxygen tank in my backpack, uh, goggles on. I had uh, special boots uh, that not only uh, were very insulating, but also had crampons on so that I could grab onto the terrain. Uh, of course, on a spacewalk, we have special features on the boot that allow us to get into a foot restraint and do uh, very precise tasks. You're wearing big, bulky gloves. Uh, you're reliant upon uh, fixed lines to keep you attached to the mountain or attached to your spaceship. So a lot of things uh, you know, play in uh, very closely uh, between the two environments. Also, we, we depend on our team, the people around us, and also in our mission control. For me, on Everest, I had a team uh, down at base camp that I was talking to on a radio basis, checking in with them as I would with uh, my IVA crew member inside the spaceship and talking with Mission Control in Houston on a spacewalk. So I, I really felt, uh, as, as I left my tent at, uh, a little bit after 8 o'clock at night to go for the summit on Everest, that I was you know, emerging from the, uh, the hatch of the ISS uh, going for a spacewalk. Um, in terms of training, you know, there's a lot of uh, physical training for both activities, uh, for EV, it takes a lot of upper body strength and endurance. For a mountain expedition, it takes a lot of cardiovascular fitness. So you need to have a lot of uh, endurance and, and strong legs and lungs to be able to, to uh, do the, the climb. And then also just the, the technical training. You need to understand your your gear and the task ahead of you. Uh, Mount Everest is, is very technically challenging, as are the, the spacewalks that people are doing up on ISS. And both of them are a lot of fun. What, it's a great question. What was, the, what was the bigger high, I suppose, when you're standing at the top of Mount Everest or the first time you exited the space shuttle and you saw the Earth below you? I mean, both must be just a, a phenomenal thrill. Is there one that's more imprinted in your brain, a little heavier than the other? Well, that, that's uh, tough for me to say. It's, it's comparing apples to oranges. Uh, both of them were... You know, really defining moments in my life. Uh, I think had I just gone up and summited my first year, uh, I might not have placed as much uh, importance 
on the Everest summit, but the fact that uh, I didn't make it the first time and I had to really struggle to to just get back to the mountain to try again and then to ultimately succeed, that really uh, made it one of the most uh, significant experiences of my life. Uh, I guess the delayed gratification of uh, finally uh, making that summit after dreaming about it for so many years. But certainly, uh, you know, the experience of an EVA and a a space flight is uh, more beautiful than, than any words can describe. And I wouldn't trade either of those experiences, you know, for anything in the world. I can imagine. Well, Scott, let me also just follow up with that and say, um, can you remember any time at all during your second successful attempt to climb Mount Everest that you had doubts, either doubts in yourself or doubts that, you know, your ability or your strength wasn't going to carry you to the top? And if you remember feeling that way, how did you mentally combat that to get yourself up there? Well, the answer is yes. I had several times when I, I questioned whether or not I could make it. Uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, mentally and physically. Um, summit morning, which is actually you know around 8.17 8, p.m. is when we left our camp and headed for the summit. So you climb all the way through the night. Uh, my goal being to arrive at the summit uh, at sunrise so that I could see a, an orbital sunrise or the equivalent of one uh, on the top of the mountain. So uh, there was about four inches of fresh fallen snow as uh, we headed for the summit, and it's incredibly steep. And uh, so you'd take uh, you know, one step up and then slip back about uh, six inches as the snow would settle beneath you, and uh, just incredibly uh, fatiguing. And I remember asking my triple buddy, Danuru, hey, are we uh, almost at the uh, the balcony, which is a uh, you know, one of the milestones on the way up to the uh, uh, the summit ridge. He said, "Oh yes, we're almost there. Ten minutes." And uh, you know, so ten minutes later, I would ask him again, and he he would say, "Oh yes, uh, uh, ten minutes." And so I I had no uh, real idea how how well we were doing. Um, it was a a very uh, sliver of a moon, so I couldn't really see the uh, the target ahead of me. Uh, a lot of times when you when you go hiking in the mountains, you can see the summit or the the peak that you're climbing, and you can gauge how well you're doing. But I had no reference other than the uh, the slope ahead of me that was lit by my uh, my headlamp, and so it was uh, you know very uh, mentally fatiguing to uh, uh, just be continuing to to slug up the mountain without any any reference frame. And you now, thankfully, we were making great time, uh, and uh, every Every once in a while, we would hit a, a patch of solid, con- solid consolidated snow, and I'd make some good progress and, and think, okay, well, I'll, I'll keep going for another half hour here, and we'll, we'll just see how this goes. And, and uh, we ended up arriving at the balcony at around midnight, which is really great time, and then the south summit around 2.30 in the morning. So it, it turned out that we're actually going a little bit too fast, and I didn't want to go too fast and uh, arrive at the summit in pitch blackness and uh, not be able to see the sunrise. Um, if you if you get up there too early and you get chilled, then you have to descend before you, you can really take in the views. So uh, it all worked out perfectly, but um, you know, there were certainly moments of, of doubt. If you arrived at 2.30, what time was the sunrise on the top of the mountain? So, yeah, so the, just to give you some of the geography, uh, the south summit is not the true summit. The north summit is the, the real summit. Uh, you descend uh, 
about 50 or 60 feet to a, a corniced ridge, and then you hit one of the the big obstacles and one of the major landmarks on the route called the Hillary Step, about 60 feet in, in altitude, and some interesting uh, mixed climbing on snow and ice and rock. Um, and then you arrive on the final summit ridge, which uh, takes you about 300 feet of vertical up to the true summit. And so uh, I arrived at the summit at uh, 4 o'clock uh, on the head, and at 4.05 is when the, uh, the orange glow of the uh, of the sun started to uh, peek its head over the, uh, the horizon. So it worked out really well. Hi, Scott. This is Mark Ratterman. Uh, I got a question back on... Uh back on NASA and your uh -huh. flights with a shuttle. What were your feelings about your time in space and your work with NASA when you knew that you had probably flown for the last time and later when you retired from NASA? Well, that, that's an interesting question as well. Um, I was very well prepared uh, for my last flight in terms of uh, acceptance that it was going to be my last mission, STS-120. And it was an incredibly complicated, exciting mission with a great crew. And so I went in with the right mindset that this would be my, my last experience in space and that I would try and savor all the unique things about space flight you know, to last a lifetime. And so I did that, and I, was, uh, I, I really enjoyed myself. The mission turned out to be much more than any of us bargained for. It involved a, a very challenging uh, and a a bit riskier than usual spacewalk to go repair a solar array and some other unique features. So uh, it was a great way to end my career. But um, I guess backing up a little bit, uh, I was uh, assigned to a mission at the time of the Columbia tragedy, and uh, that really hit very close to home. Uh, the crew was very close to me personally, and uh, having been very close to that whole recovery process, um, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to fly again, but after the accident, I was assigned to be the, the lead spacewalker for the, uh, the space shuttle inspection and repair by EVA. And um, so I helped develop all the, the tools and techniques and, and procedures for doing that. And I decided that uh, if... Uh, I was going to have a role in, in doing that. I, I owed it um, to NASA and also to the uh, that crew to, to fly one more time. So that uh, long long answer, uh, but uh, at one point after Columbia, I had considered not flying again. Uh, but then I I decided that I, I would return, and I I was very thankful that uh, it was a great mission on STS-120. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, one thing I associate with all of you astronauts is your dedication to to the mission, your dedication to what you're doing, and uh, and with the the tragedy of Columbia, to to come out of that, to look to make things better, and to be personally involved, and then go fly. Uh, that's that's a statement to your can do and and your willingness to to sacrifice. Well, thank you. No, and I I think. It was, uh, it was really the spirit of certainly everyone here at the Johnson Space Center and Kennedy Space Center, anyone who was involved in, in human spaceflight, it, it really catalyzed a lot of dedication and positive outcome out of tragedy. You know, it's a, it's a, a tough thing to deal with. It, of course, the, the shock uh, and horror of it 
but uh, um, out of those types of things often come uh, great results, and I think the way NASA recovered from it uh, was, was fantastic. It really made the, the program uh, much safer, and, and the lessons learned will carry forward to the, you know, the future programs as well. Now, you brought up Apollo 11 moon rocks with you, correct? When you summited right. Everest? Now, actually, I had the honor of holding on to those when we met at the Challenger Center Convention in New York. But when I was at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, they have a moon rock there. And I watched as kids ran up to it, touched it. They were like, oh, cool. And then after that, it was basically, what's next? Did you notice any difference of a reaction to seeing a moon rock when uh, you were at Mount Everest? Yes, that's uh, a very interesting observation, sir. And, and uh, I, I think... Uh, Americans who uh, grew up with uh, the knowledge that uh, men had visited the moon and had collected rocks and and uh, been there and done that uh, maybe are less uh, motivated by the the opportunity to hold on to a moon rock. But what was really striking in Nepal for the Sherpa people was such a, a fantastic, uh, unbelievable thing that uh, they were actually holding piece of the moon, it was almost as if uh, uh, it was a spiritual experience. Uh, they would uh, universally hold it up uh, to their forehead, which is uh, a, a sacred part of the body. Only a Tibetan Buddhist lama is, uh, is allowed to touch that part of a person's body. Uh, and so to hold it up to the forehead and, and then regard it with real reverence was uh, was really dramatic, and it was uh, something that we saw over and over again. We didn't uh, show it to a lot of people until uh, right before the the summit push, but uh, I can tell you that uh, the IMG team that I went with was was really uh, in awe of this piece of uh, the moon, and and I think it has some some really neat significance now that it's been to the top of Everest. And you may have heard this, but uh, I'm going to be presenting the, the moon rock as well as the summit rock back to NASA on January 6th to uh, my friend from STS-120, George Zamka, who's the commander of that flight, and he's going to deliver both samples to the uh, tranquility module on the, you know, the International Space Station. It's the module that they're carrying up, and I think that's kind of a fitting uh, uh, place to display those, uh, those treasures. I'd say so. That definitely... Uh matches the significance of Apollo 11 there. Right, and one thing that uh, you may not realize, after Hillary climbed Everest and uh, Neil Armstrong went to the moon, they became close friends later in life, and they actually went to uh, polls together and stayed in close touch through uh, uh, their later years. And, and so to pay tribute to both of them, that, that was kind of the genesis of, uh, of taking the, uh, the moon rock in the first place. Uh, Scott, first off, I want to thank you for your contributions to uh, to uh, spaceflight as a whole. Um, they were very, very, uh, very significant. Um, you had taken a set of uh, commemorative prayer flags up with you on Everest um, in memory of uh, the crew of STS-51L, STS-107, Apollo 1, Soyuz 1, and Soyuz 11. What is the, the uh, significance of those those prayer flags? Because I, I saw the, I saw a photograph of them, and I got, I, I'll be honest, I got choked up a little bit. Oh, well, thank you, Janet. That means a lot to me. Um, yes. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the significance of Tibetan prayer flags is, is really quite beautiful. They're uh, 
colorful flags that have Sanskrit lettering, sometimes drawings on them. The notion being if you hang them on uh, bridges, uh, mountain passes, or mountain summits in the Himalayas, and you see them uh, all over the place in these incredibly beautiful places to include the summit of Mount Everest. Uh, the notion is as uh, they weather through the, the sun and wind and, and snow and the elements, uh, they slowly disintegrate and the prayers are carried up to heaven. And so uh, I thought it would be a fitting tribute to uh, make some of my own prayer flags that uh, I take to the top. And uh, they bear the likeness, likenesses of the crews that you mentioned as well as their mission patches. And uh, I strung them up uh, on the top of the mountain. And uh, you know, it's, it's, I can think of uh, no finer place on earth to, uh, to honor uh, our space uh, heroes neither could i i thought that was that, that's that's such a neat reply too I'm, I'm i'm getting goosebumps as you're talking about that and i think that's that is such a such a neat uh such a neat thing um you did some science on the expedition did you not um sort of uh looking for life in, in harsh environments and i believe also too you took a uh, a lunar hammer that hopefully will be part of project constellation how did all the, how did all that work out I wanted to uh, not only experience uh, Everest as uh, an individual, but I wanted to bring something of value uh, back uh, in terms of science and, and engineering development and also for educational outreach. So uh, with my good friends uh, Keith Cowling and, and Miles O'Brien, who you may have heard of, um, we did a lot of educational outreach. And then uh, Keith and I, along with colleagues at Ames Research Center, did some what we call astrobiology, which is uh, the search for clues about life in the most extreme environments. Because if you if you learn how life can adapt to very harsh environments, you might understand more about how life might have once existed on Mars or some other planet. And uh, actually, the, the environment of Everest is not dissimilar uh, from Mars. It's a very thin uh, atmosphere, high ultraviolet which can be very damaging uh, cellular uh, life here on Earth. Uh, so the, the conditions are, are, uh, are fascinating to study. So we took basically uh, DNA samples and looked at how the ultraviolet exposure at these very high altitudes uh, affected the, uh, the structure of the DNA and brought those back to uh, a laboratory at the Ames Research Center in California for analysis. We also took a, an ultraviolet dosimeter, which is basically a, a sensor that looks at the intensity of ultraviolet radiation at the base camp and also up at Camp 2, and uh, compared those with uh, controls at other places around the world. And uh, So we hope that that will be useful for, um, for scientists to understand how the uh, ultraviolet profiles uh, exist uh, around the globe and also um, how it might affect uh, life forms. Uh, had had the intention to uh, collect some fossilized uh, uh, samples up at the Yellow Band, which is about 25,000 feet above sea level. It's the highest sedimentary rock in the world. Uh, it's a sandstone band that you have to cross on your way to Camp 4, or High Camp on the, on the route. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't find any loose rock on my way up, and I, I really didn't want to 
add any additional weight to myself, so I, I decided, well, I'll get something on the way down. And on the way down, I was just so exhausted that I, I forgot to pick up a rock. Um, so maybe uh, maybe someone else will go collect those samples for us. Um, and then finally, we did some engineering development work. So we, we did uh, test out a lunar uh, sample uh, hammer uh, there. And of course, you know, wearing a big down suit and uh, big mitts, it's not an, unlike uh, working with uh, a space suit on. And uh, tested that out and a few other pieces of gear that uh, are still in development. So it was a, it was a really a, a neat experience to um, to help advance the space program in a small way there. Yeah, and again, continue, sort of continuing sort of continuing your work um, with uh, you know, with the uh, the five shuttle flights you were you were on as well. So so again, still contributing to to the program. So thank you again. Um, I I watched the uh, the Discovery Channel uh, series. Uh, on Everest, just you know, in, in preparation for for today, right. and there were a lot of nail biting moments on there. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, I, I just a, a quick question um, with with reference to uh, Dr. Carl Heinz. I was wondering if he was on your mind at all as you were making the ascent. Sure, Carl uh, was a uh, an Apollo era astronaut. He was selected in the mid '60s, I believe. He didn't fly an Apollo, but he did fly a shuttle flight uh, before Challenger. Um, and uh, when he retired from astronaut corps, it was also his life ambition to, to climb Mount Everest. And so in 1993, he uh, did try to summit Mount Everest from the north side, from Tibet, and unfortunately perished because of complications of altitude uh, called high altitude pulmonary edema. I'd only met him uh, once or twice, uh, but uh, I'd always heard great things about him. And so to pay tribute to he and his family, I did take uh, one of his mission patches up to the summit. And it, it's still up there as far as, uh, as, far as I know. Oh, wow. Um, the, 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 uh, the pulmonary edema, wasn't there a, a gentleman on the expedition that unfortunately had, we think may have suffered from that during the ascent? Uh, well, um, there were two individuals on my team who developed uh, chest tightness, and I think uh, probably what happened to them, uh, as you acclimatize to high altitude, you build additional red blood cells, so your your blood becomes more viscous or thick, and uh, so the risk of heart attacks and stroke are much higher in those environments. So I think they probably had a heart issue more than a, a lung issue, uh, but I did treat... Uh, one of the trekkers who came up to uh, the base camp for pulmonary edema, we put him in a basically a portable hyperbaric chamber. It's called a Gamoff bag. And he felt much better when he was in that. And as soon as we took him out, he got progressively more and more short of breath. And so we had to, to send him back down to, to lower altitude and, and back home. So it, it's, a, it's a very unforgiving environment. And if, if you do develop a problem like pulmonary edema, or cerebral edema, which is even scarier, swelling of the brain. The only cure is to descend as quickly as possible. 
And I believe you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place too, because if you descend, you still run the risk of of you know of dying. But if you ascend, and if you go up any further, you're 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 running the risk of dying. So you're kind of you're kind of stuck there. And you know the only way you know the only thing you can do is come back and come back real slow, I guess. Can't you cannot delay? That's right. On uh, STS-120, they, they they sort of refer to um, uh, the discovery of the tears of the solar array of, as the uh, ISS's Apollo 13 moment. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the repair on the uh, on the solar array? And then I have a follow-up question: If there were any type of like Apollo 13 moments on on your ascent? Well, it certainly was the the high point of of my career uh, to be associated with that team and to to help do my, my part of the, uh, the repair. Uh, when we looked at it initially, we thought this is an unsolvable problem. This is something that uh, will ripple down uh, to uh, the rest of the space shuttle manifest and, and uh, you know, be it, have a disastrous outcome. Uh, we're, we were dependent upon that solar array to power the international partner modules. Uh, in fact, we weren't really safe to undock from the space station uh, with a, an array partially deployed like that. So we probably would have had to have gone out on a contingency spacewalk and jettisoned that solar array if they hadn't come up with a, a plan to fix it. So in 72 hours, uh, people you know, working around the clock, uh, a lot of co- coffee uh, to fuel them on, uh, came up with a brilliant plan to, first of all, get the crew member out there using a uh, the inspection boom in a way that it had never been envisioned before, and to thread it through uh, the needle, basically around some other solar rays, uh, at the very reach of its extent of its reach, in my six foot three frame, to get a person out there to clip out the spray guide wire, and then put in five of these uh, cufflinks, as we call them, essentially uh, a large gauge wire with tabs. Uh, integrated into the ends of them so that we could uh, uh, stabilize the array on either side of uh, the two tears that were present. And uh, it just worked flawlessly. Uh, it was uh, uh, a bit bit of a nail-biter because, of course, we were working on a, a fully energized solar array, but um, all of my tools were insulated. And as long as uh, there wasn't any uh, direct contact with metal on the, uh, the solar array, uh, I was likely to be fine, but uh, it was a, certainly a very dramatic uh, uh, end to my career. It was my, my final spacewalk of my career. And I, you know, like I said, it was uh, um, a real honor to work with uh, the brilliant men and women of NASA who came up with the plan. And they really did have that Apollo 13 type of moment. Okay, what do they have on board the space station that they could use to go fix this? And all ideas were were considered, they, uh, they down-selected to the, the most likely one that would work, and uh, it, was, it was fantastic. And, and come, we watched the uh, the EVA from here, and, and that was a bit of a nail-biter, too, because the press were sort of bringing up the idea that, indeed, you know, if you got anywhere close to the solar, solar array, there was indeed some sort of... Uh, uh, electro, you know, there there is an electric electrocution risk. So we were kind of sort of biting our nails down here, hoping that everything went well. Yeah. I'll tell you. Thankfully, um, it did. <laughs> yeah, thankfully. Um, with reference to uh, now going back to Everest, were there any 
thing that you can think of that was, was sort of like an Apollo 13 style moment during both your your climb up and possibly your climb down? Well, there are a couple things that were uh, you know defining moments of, of those experiences. Um, in 2008, um, on my summit push, I uh, was at uh, Camp 3, which is at 24,500 feet above sea level, and uh, I had excruciating uh, low back pain. Uh, in fact, it kept me up all night, and uh, I, I tried uh, uh, for a short while to, to press on up to the next camp and to continue my summit bid, but I knew it was a, uh, a risky situation. If I uh, pressed my cards, uh, you know, I might end up in a rescue situation. I might jeopardize the success of my, my teammates who were there to help me, and uh, I might even place them in, in harm's way. So that was one of uh, the times in my life where I had to really make a tough decision, doing the right thing versus uh, pursuing my ambition. And I, I did the right thing by turning around at that point. But it was certainly the, a very difficult personal decision because I had you know, worked so hard for that moment and uh, you know, dreamt my whole life about going from there to the summit. Thankfully, I was able to come back the, the following year and, and finish the job. But uh, that, that was certainly one of my most difficult times. doesn't really rank up there with an Apollo 13 moment. But uh, And then I, I guess the other uh, experience that uh, was played out uh, on the Discovery Channel in the, the second episode was uh, John Golden's uh, epic uh, adventure up the mountain and how he uh, ended up going for the summit in a very short uh, weather window. The weather window really didn't open up and he ended up having to descend with his team in a blizzard, followed by dislocating his knee, followed by cracking three ribs and, and fracturing his hand. So uh, um, I was not there uh, alongside him, but I'm sure that was a really challenging uh, time for both John Shea and Justin Morrill and then the, the two Sherpas that with them. Uh, but, you know, I think when you're faced with a, a life-threatening situation like that, it, it brings out the best in people, and, and uh, that team certainly did a great job getting John down. Yeah, I, I thought that, you know, I, I watched the special myself, and, and I thought, with all due respect, I think the gentleman who was uh, uh, calling the shots uh, made the right call uh, with yeah, not yeah. allowing him to, to, to go any further. And I'll tell you, my heart broke, you know, as they played back the portion where you were looking up at the summit in 2008. And I'm just looking at, at you and I'm like, oh, man, that must have just been, you know, you were like, there it is. There's a summit and I just can't get there. And I was like, oh, man, that would tear me up. <laughs> I swear. The thing yeah, is so, yeah. this the thing is so tantalizingly close and to be just to, to be stuck, you know, to be, have your own body sort of go ahead and, and just go go to war with you at that moment just w must have been, oh, man, I, I must have been at a colossal disappointment. Um, right. But, hey, the back you know, back there next year and, and made up for it, not only that, but made up for it in grand style, watching the sunrise uh, up on the summit. Wow, the, the photographs from that were just amazing. Scott, thanks for your time. I do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Now, one last question before we go. You've participated five times obviously in the space shuttle program and now that the space shuttle is being retired and uh, NASA seems like they're going along with the constellation program 
what path do you think NASA should take, especially with the Augustine Commission giving them a couple of ideas? What way do you think NASA should go in the future? Well, that's a, a loaded question and uh, one that I, I hope the new administration decides very quickly because a lot's at stake, our, our competitiveness as well as uh, you know, our future stake in space. Um, I, I think that we've invested a lot in the International Space Station, so I think uh, keeping that aloft for, for many years to come, not just uh, through 2020, but as long as it makes sense uh, to uh, continue to do uh, cutting-edge science there, uh, I think we ought to commit to, to sending humans to, to ISS and maybe using it uh, commercially as well in the future to offset some of the costs. But ultimately, I think it's important for us to get out of low Earth orbit and uh, uh, back to the moon and uh, onto Mars and perhaps asteroids and other interesting places around the, uh, the solar system. So to develop the technologies to, to get us there, um, I think is really important. I, I personally favor a lunar outpost to develop the, uh, the tools and techniques and the life support systems, uh, the really, really capable, long-lasting life support systems that can live in that kind of harsh environment. Not just uh, a vacuum, but there's uh, there's dust and things that uh, affect your, your spacesuits and your tools and and uh, the uh, the life support systems that have to be fleshed out before you, I think, commit to a long-term presence on Mars. So, uh, and I also think that getting back to the Moon is something that we can achieve in, in relatively short order. And once we really develop the spacecraft and the and the habitats. Uh, on the moon, we could use that same technology and take those to Mars. Ultimately, though, the, the prize is going to be Mars and, and uh, perhaps even one day to go to Europa, uh, which, as you may know, is a, a moon of uh, one of the outer gas planets that has a, a water crust. And conceivably, because of all the uh, volcanic activity there, uh, oceans underneath that crust that... Uh, could harbor life. And uh, so I think it'd be amazing to, to one day send robotic and then uh, human uh, explorers to, to those places. So I just have one follow-up, just one quick question here. What's next for Scott Parazinski? And you, you've flown the shuttle five times. You're a, you're the only astronaut to uh, climb Mount Everest. Uh, you've, what, what's, what's next um, for you, sir? What, what do you have? Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, I, uh, it's interesting. You know, when I got back from Everest, that that question has been asked of me many, many times, and it's one of the things. It's interesting to me. I, I never thought of it along those lines. Uh, I never really considered that uh, I'd have to uh, equal or top anything that I'd done before in my life. You know, I've always just kind of gone from one one challenge to the next. Um, I, I guess where I'm in my life at this point, I'd I'd like to find other challenges. Uh, perhaps closer to home. I have two school-age kids, so um, looking for adventures that I can share with them to take them to experience the mountains I think would be a lot of fun. But also, uh, I'd like to do some things that uh, help people on a broader scale. One of the organizations that I'm very closely aligned with is the Challenger Centers for Space Science Education, which fosters science, technology, engineering, and math uh, uh, experiences that hopefully motivate kids to go into those fields later in life. So I think it really is important for our country's future as well as uh, 
for the students that go through our programs to be able to speak math and science and engineering. It's, it's kind of the language of the future. If you're going to be competitive in the world, you need to be able to, to speak those languages. And uh, so that's really a, a passion of mine, to be able to help that organization and, and other STEM organizations uh, uh, reach out to as many kids as possible. So yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, my, my big picture roadmap. I, I'm in the, the private sector now. I work for a company called Wiley. We support NASA and the Department of Defense and other government agencies uh, in engineering, primarily. Uh, so it's a lot of fun to still have my hand in, uh, in the space program to a certain degree. Great. And the work that you do for Challenger Centers, being an employee of one, everything that you do is greatly appreciated. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, sir. I appreciate your, your kind words. And seeing what the work, uh, the, the end result of that work, I, my uh, nephew was just at the uh, Challenger Center that my that Sawyer works at uh, about two weeks ago, and his eyes were just about lighting up, and you could not pry him away from any of those activities with, with a you know w- with a crowbar. I mean, he was really really into it, and he still. I just saw him last night, and he was still talking about it. So. Oh, that's great. Love to hear those stories. All right now, if people want to keep up with Scott Parazinski. Where can they keep getting information on you or following you? Well, uh, you know, I, I, in the past year and a half or so, as I started my Everest expeditions, uh, I was encouraged to uh, get involved in social media. So uh, I have a, a Twitter account called Spot Scott, and I also have uh, actually a recently launched web page uh, that I, I, I started to blog on. It's, it's basically a continuation of my Everest blog. Uh, and the things that I'm in, involved in. And that's uh, Karazinski.com. And uh, so that's been a lot of fun to be able to interact with a lot lot of folks. And on my website, I have a, a Q&A page. So if people have questions they want to ask, they can, uh, they can post them. And it may take me a few days to, to get around to, to answering them. But uh, um, I'd love to offer that up to uh, your listeners. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Scott Parazinski, for coming on the show. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you once again, Dr. Scott Parazinski, and uh, thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Thank you, Sawyer. Thank you, Scott. And I hope everybody listening will uh, will promote this, not for us, but for the uh, the people who give us such such great uh, great content, great things to think about, and uh, in fact, really more things to study, more things to learn. Indeed, and Gene McCulga, thank you as well. Thank you again, Sawyer, and again, thank you to uh, Dr. Scott Parazinski for joining us today. Uh, just a remarkable conversation with a re- very, very remarkable and accomplished individual. Indeed, not kidding. And Gina Hurley, thank you once again as well. Oh, thanks, Sawyer, for having me. And uh, just to pass the word to check your local listings on the Discovery Channel to catch Scott's show beyond the limits. Yes, indeed. And also, you'll notice a couple of new things coming for our new season. Some of them I can't tell you, but uh, they're on their way, and there are a couple that have already started. One, you'll notice that we have a new logo, and we'd like to give a very special thank you to at Flying Jenny on Twitter for coming up with that creative and amazing logo, I have to say. And also, a very special thank you to Russ Dale and Todd Cecilio who created the brand new opening for our new season, which is also amazing and out of this world. So thank you guys for all that, and keep your ears posted for a couple of new things coming this season. 
Also, as always, be sure to follow us on Twitter, and that is at twitter.com slash talking space. And just because it's a new season doesn't mean we're going to end it any different way. Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.